Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome back to Professor Christopher Chappell's lectures about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Let's continue with the next lecture. In this, there is control of breath, which is the regulation of the motion of the in-breath and out-breath. Its fluctuations are external, internal, and suppressed. It, the breath, is observed according to time, place, and number, and becomes long and subtle. The fourth is withdrawal from external and internal conditions of breath. Then the covering of light is dissolved. Tasmin satisvasa prasvasayor gativichedaha pranayamaha. Tasmin satisvasa prasvasayor gativichedaha pranayamaha. Tasmin satisvasa prasvasayor gativichedaha pranayamaha. Bahabhyantara stambhavrittahi deshikala sankhyabhi paridurshto dirga sukshmaha. Bahabhyantara stambhavrittahi deshikala sankhyabhi paridurshto dirga sukshmaha. Bahabhyantara stambhavrittahi deshikala sankhyabhi paridurshto dirga sukshmaha. Bahabhyantara Vishaya Kshepi Chaturtaha Bahabhyantara Vishaya Kshepi Chaturtaha Bahabhyantara Vishaya Kshepi Chaturtaha Tataha Kshiyate Prakashavaranam Tataha Kshiyate Prakashavaranam Tataha Kshiyate Prakashavaranam Pranayam, the breath, the breath of life. And in these four short sutras, Patanjali gives an exposition of the nature of breath. Inhale, hold, exhale, hold gives directionality in terms of reminding the yogi that there will be short breath and there will be long breath. There will be long breath that leads toward the subtle. There will be stability of breath in playing with that dance between the interior and the exterior breath. And then at the culmination moment, there will be a wonderful experience whereby the performance of pranayama takes the cloak away and allows the wonder of the luminosity of the soul to be revealed. And I'd like to think of that moment as the great white light moment of Patanjali. And as we sort through these sutras, what we will see is 
a bit of a sense of progression, an elation that comes with the performance of that final moment in pranayama, and then we'll look at how to invite students to have an experience and how to invite students to reflect on that experience. So, shvasa and prashvasa. From the very first pada, we heard about the inhale and the exhale. Quite often, unless you're a child in choir, you never think about the breath. And I remember as a child in choir, we learned that no, you have to regulate your voice such that it's timed with the exhale of breath as you sing. And then we learned as young people about diaphragmatic breathing, about ribcage breathing, about filling the upper areas, and about how to regulate the usage of breath. So choir, one important moment. And then of course, another place where at least American children are schooled about the breath, we find in swimming lessons and learning how to breathe, how to make bubbles, and how to find a way of rhythm within the breath that accords with your stroke, whatever the stroke may be, arm over arm in the crawl, or even the back stroke or the breast stroke. How many breaths? How many breaths will it take to go from here to there? And with swimming in particular, the utter importance of the breath always is evident because if you mess up, there will be no breath, and with no breath, there is no life. So in yoga, people are given the opportunity to link their breathing and link the holding of their breathing with movement. And in yoga, people are given instruction explicitly about very distinct and discrete breathing exercises. Now, Patanjali leaves this rather non-specific. He talks about inhale, he talks about exhale, and he also talks about the hold. Now, in the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Garanda Samhita, the literature in Hatha Yoga that starts as early as a thousand years ago, we get more specific instruction and very detailed instruction about breath. And what I would like to share with you by way of example will be the tribunda. And the tribunda, the three-part breath, which is actually four parts, is the technique that we were given at Yoga Anandashram in the 1970s to carry forward every single day. And it engages a slow inhale with the application of Mulaban. At the top of the breath, a hold with the application of Jalandharabund, chin to the chest. And then a release an exhale, 
And then a hold, part four, with the application of Udyanabandh, the stomach contraction. So again, this breath, inhale with the pelvic lift, fully inhaled with a hold of the inhale, Jalandhara Bun, chin to the chest, pulling up from the earth and down from the sky, honoring the middle, honoring the stamba, the vritti, stabilized by the held breath. And then with the exhale, the release of the lower, release of the upper lock. And then in that critical fourth breath, the hold of Udyanabhan, the stomach contraction. And with this performance of breath, building up to 10 repetitions every morning, comes a calming effect that lasts through the day. And a person who commits to a regular practice of pranayama, and this is well documented, will in fact experience a slower rate of respiration. People without attention or awareness of breath often will breathe quite shallow and will breathe maybe 17 times a moment. And a person who just takes that time every morning, five, 10 minutes of a very attentive mode of breathing, performance of pranayama, that will sort of program the body so that the rate of respiration will be maybe 10 or 12 breaths a minute, or maybe a little bit less. More energy, perhaps, with that movement. I mean, the oxygen level stays the same, but the conservation of energy by not breathing very rapidly allows a person to experiencing a settling in within the nervous system and a settling in to a place akin to what we get with asana, stira, sukha, stable and easy. Likewise, by bringing some intentionality to the process of breath, an intimacy is gained with all of those body layers that we talked about earlier, with bone and marrow, with tendon and ligament, with muscle, with fascia, even with a sense of heightened awareness of epidermis, connection with that sense of touch, connected to the internal process of breathing. And all of that can be put in service of elongating the fascia, a giving purpose and feeling the stability of musculature, feeling stability and perhaps even symmetry of skeleton through the breath. Every breath moves our bones, even the bones of our skull, 
and by breathing fully and by gaining mastery of breathing slowly, of holding an inhale, of breathing slowly, holding the exhale, that steadiness of breath promotes calm. That steadiness of breath brings a person close to, if not within, an experience of nirodha, of that quieting of the fluctuations. It's become fairly standard for people in anxiety or some sort of difficult situation. I'm not talking clinically here, I'm just saying, if you're a little worked up about something, what's the piece of advice we often hear is, breathe, breathe, relax, and it usually works. Not always, but it usually, usually works. Now, another feature that we find within this cluster of sutras brings our attention to that ever important fourth breath. And in India, both in Upanishadic literature and in Buddhist literature and in Jain literature, we find never a simple dualism, but quite often we find a quaternary. And in the Upanishads, consciousness finds itself parsed into four layers, four levels. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and then a transcendent state of quiet referred to rather elliptically as the fourth state. Beyond waking, beyond dreaming, beyond even the erasure of both, but up to, in the Chandogya Upanishad, it says that at that level, the witness observes as all actions take place. And according to Buddhism, there's a world of the phenomenal, we must let that go. There is a tendency toward utter negation, we must let that go. There is also a way of diffidence that, oh yeah, it's here, but it isn't here, it doesn't really matter. That too must be let go in order for the emptying of all samskara, the emptying of all mental obfuscations to evaporate, allow one in Zeninium to simply be in the here and now. And in Jainism, they say in a certain way, uh, everything is existing. In another way, yeah, things aren't gonna be here forever. And yes, it is true that things are here and they're not here, but really words fail. And it's at that point where words fail, avaktavya, we're not able to name it or say it, 
That's the state, that's the consciousness that brings us closest to our best self. It's at that place analogously, okay, inhale breath, exhale hold, okay, inhale breath, the hold, exhale breath, and then the hold of the exhale. According to Patanjali, that brings us to the place of illumination. That held exhale allows those samskaras, those vasanas, those klishta karmas to dissolve. And in that, we can catch a glimpse of the luminosity of our true nature. So as a yoga teacher, you could work with that inhale with the lock, hold with the lock, that exhale, and then the long held exhale with the third lock. Or you could work with inhale, hold, exhale other nostril, hold, inhale, hold, exhale, other nostril, hold the exhale. Or a little couple of bhati, a little bit of rapid breathing. And then ask the student to perhaps keep a journal or just share right in class. Their state, their emotional state. Generally, these breathings bring one from a state of dissipated or agitated or dispersed mind into a state of quiet mind. And as, as a yoga teacher, you suggest to your students, observe the breath, find your diaphragm, let the air fill the lower lobes of your lungs, then let them feel the side of the rib cage and experience the side breath into this section of the lungs. And then let them feel the clavicle and feel the breathing up into the shoulders and just the difference. Feel the difference. Feel the difference in the inhale and the exhale. And the inhale hold and the exhale hold. And have them report back. Have them, of course, from time to time, link. If you're doing Surya Namaskar, inhale up, exhale forward, step back, and remind always of the breath. In the Upanishads, there was a contest. And all of the senses boasted. Sense of nose, sense of smell, said, I'm the best. And then the mouth said, no, I'm the best. And the eye said, no, I'm the best. And the skin said, no, I'm the best sensation. And the ear said, no, without hearing. What would life be? And one by one, they left. And someone lost the sense of smell, lost not only the sense of taste, but the ability to speak, 
lost the ability to touch or even to see or to hear. But then the breath said, see if you can do without me. And all of the senses screamed out, no, keep us alive, breathe. We honor you. You, the breath, are the source of life. You are the key to our freedom. And there is fitness of the mind for concentration. Inwardness of the senses is the disengagement from external conditions so that the mind imitates its true form. Then arises utmost command of the senses. Dharana su cha yogyata manasaha. Dharana su cha yogyata manasaha. Dharana su cha yogyata manasaha. Sva vishaya asamprayoge chitta svarupanukara ivendriyanam pratyaharaha sva vishaya asamprayoge chitta svarupanukara ivendriyanam pratyaharaha sva vishaya Asamprayoge chitta svarupanukara evendriyanam pratyaharaha tataha parama vashyatendriyanam tataha parama vashyatendriyanam tataha parama vashyatendriyanam This conclusion to the second pada introduces the notion of pratyahara, the skill of becoming quiet, the skill of turning inward. And it builds upon and actually requires mastery of breath and enables the following, the sixth anga of yoga to occur, dharana. So with the breathing, a rarefied ability of the mind to concentrate, and that concentration arises when all that is external, you can set aside so that even in the midst of whatever is going on, you're able to focus and not even hear the noise in the other room, not have your eye drawn away by something random happening elsewhere in your field of vision. And in this, you're able to approximate, you're able to get to that place of imitating your swarupa. Okay, and your swarupa, 
recall from the very opening of the very first pada, the outflow of Chitravirtya is that you stand, avastana, in your Swarupa. And like that, when you become inward, when you become skilled at not being distracted by external conditions, then you're able to go in that place of calm to that place close to the experience of being the witness. Then, from that place, you gain mastery, vashyata, over the senses of the highest order, parama. So, prayahara, quite often people don't know quite what to do with it because the other translation terms, aside from inwardness, quite often are about withdrawal, and it sounds as if someone is just giving up on the world, isolating themselves in a cave. But if we examine the phenomenological description of the process, it's actually quite precise. It's saying that distractions no longer distract, that there's a fitness, a yogyata, and it's interesting, um, I've not yet heard of the Yogyata studio, but I anticipate it coming one day, because it's this beautiful conflation of appropriate and yoga. So fitness or suitable practice for meditation. And certainly since childhood, and I think this is true for, for most, if not everyone, that we treasure our alone time. We treasure those moments when we are able to recharge our batteries, when we are given permission not to constantly engage. To have nothing to do is such a blessing, such a blessing not to be pulled outward, outward into media, outward into conversation, outward into work, to be able to have moments of silence, moments of calm, moments of inactivity that are not lethargic, but moments of inactivity that are restorative. Pratyahara enables those moments and actually describes the content, describes the feeling tone of those moments. Mahatma Gandhi, who had traveled as a teenager from Western India to England to take up the study of law, in this place called London, in a place very, very, very different from his native Gujarat, found himself at a place of identity crisis and had promised his mother he would be vegetarian, had promised his wife that he would remain faithful in his absence. And as he explored London, 
all those years ago, more than a century ago, he discovered a group of people, the theosophists, who had taken an interest, a keen interest in Indian philosophy and had rendered the Bhagavad Gita into the English language. And he had known of the Bhagavad Gita, an important book within India, but to rediscover it in his adoptive tongue, the language of law, British law in India, when he discovered particularly the last 19 verses of the second chapter, his heart soared. And he discovered in those 19 verses this beautiful description of the stitta prajna. Now, stitta, sta, solid, steady, prajna, wisdom, the person who possesses steady wisdom. We've heard stira, stiti, all variations of this verb root sta. And we've heard again and again the importance of prajna, the importance of wisdom. And in this collection of verses, that person is described as unruffled in the midst of chaos. One of the metaphors used is that, what is the use of water on the occasion of a flood? Why go into something when everything is around you? And in this state, in this state called gatheredness, or sort of together, really togetheredness, in this state called inwardness, in this state, again, a little bit of a withdrawal is taking place because you're not being drawn out into all the comings and goings. But in this state, there is this arising, enduring stability that gives you surety and confidence, as well as inspiring certainty and confidence in others who are in your presence. Another metaphor that is used in the Bhagavad Gita in this section is that of a tortoise. And those who have been to the desert and have discovered a desert tortoise, we actually hosted a whole raft of tortoises in our home through the hibernation period and saw them come alive up on our back hill. But while they were in hibernation, and if they ever found themselves under threat, they would simply take all four limbs and their head and pull them into the shell, into this place of protection, into this place of blessed restorative darkness. And we learned from these tortoises that it's okay to move slowly. It's okay to value your own protection. It's okay not to always be at the beck and call 
of other people. It's okay not to be at the beck and call of your own earnings. Rather, it's okay to not be at the beck and call of your own yearnings and itching and desire. That in fact, it's far better to have a modality, to be able to move into a mode by which you can slow it down, literally breathe deep, hold that inhale, exhale fully, hold that exhale, and abide within a state of calm. Pratyahara. Now as a yoga teacher, you can feature your class as safe space. Many of you as yoga teachers and as a yoga student, perhaps, I know this was the case of myself, you've had the meltdown. You've had that moment where the tears were streaming, sometimes unexpectedly, sometimes seemingly with no cause, sometimes with joy, sometimes just a sense of relief, a cathartic crying, and as a yoga teacher, perhaps you've observed students having a moment, a moment that is intimate, a moment that is personal, and a moment that indicates they feel safe within the space of the yoga studio. And that moment that allows for an intimacy with self becomes not just a metaphor, but a working paradigm whereby one can quell, arising from the yoga class, a need to walk, a need to grab, a need to obsess over whatever sensory object it may be. There can be a retreat into an abiding sense of calm. Shavasana, again, may provide that experience. Pranayam, some yoga studios always begin with pranayam may allow that sense of inwardness to develop. And as a yoga teacher, you can point this out quite directly to your students. Validate, verify their own experience. Don't push it on them, but perhaps language this suggestively that perhaps during a yoga class, you may find yourself at any point, rather inward, rather quiet, rather focused, and perhaps invite either in large or small group discussion or in the process of journaling, 
for people to be attentive of this limb of yoga. Just as many yoga teachers do not explicitly teach or discuss the yamas or the niyamas, so also many yoga teachers will skip over pratyahara. They get a little bit put off by the standard translation of withdrawal, but refashion this in your mind as a gift, that this ability to step back, this ability to keep things literally at arm's length, this ability to allow all of the energies to be experienced within the cave of the heart or to be experienced even in the hold of the Udhyana Band, or to be experienced within the stillness of Shavasana. Validate that experience. Validate the all too human need to not merely just sleep well at night, but to know when to use that experience of abhava, that experience of not compulsively creating and moving outward, to use that pause that refreshes, that silence that restores, as a foundation for what will follow. And it's very interesting that in the second pada, Patanjali leaves us with a bit of a cliffhanger. He leaves us in the fifth anga, knowing that stuff happens in six, seven, and eight. But yama, ethics, niyama, cultivated, refined comportment, asana, steadiness, and ease, repose within the body, pranayama, mastery of breath, all required, all integral pieces, delivering the yogi to a place of pratyahara, a place where having moved out, having reflected, one can move in. And it's at that gift moment, at that moment where a stillness arises, a stillness toward Naroda, toward even Sarva Naroda, in that stillness, we find our peace. Yama, no violence, and all that follows. Niyama, purity, and all that follows. Asana, steadiness, ease, a relaxation of effort. Pranayama, a gateway to uncovering the light of our best self. 
gathered within pratyahara, gathered in this place of inwardness that allows for an ongoing vulnerability and a willingness to explore the darkness, the klishta karma, as well as tools to develop increasingly aklishta, purified karma, preparing the yogin for concentration, for meditation, preparing the yogin for samadhi. In the second pada of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, we find multiple themes interlacing, multiple themes that are taken up and given rather remarkable attention. And in this chapter of this wonderful project, an offering of a study of the Yoga Sutra, we will do a recap of the opening themes of the second pada, specifically Kriya Yoga, Klesha Karma, as well as how to understand in the simplest of terms, the Sankhya philosophical system that informs Patanjali's approach to the application of yoga. So we begin by reconsidering Kriya Yoga. This name is a name that invites the practitioner of yoga to see this perfectibility of Kri, Kriya, Karma, this perfectibility of the actions that asked to be performed within the world. And in this place called human life, the human body, this human continuum of body, mind, and emotion, this human continuum that includes a call upward to our greater, to our, our better sense of self and our greater capacity and potential. Okay, all of this has hardwired this theory of karma calling out for purification. Hence, kriya is a way of indicating this as a true and real possibility. And as the pada opens, three practices of Kriya Yoga come front and center. The first is to put one place, one into a place of the edge. Cultivate friction, cultivate heat, Cultivate that feeling of discomfort and displacement that begins to dislodge those habits, the samskaras, the vasanas that have programmed and put really human life quite often on autopilot without an opportunity to reflect, without an opportunity to go to that place of the edge 
without an opportunity to invite the wisdom of the shadow to do its work. So this practice of tapas, this practice of generating that purifying heat within the body, this practice that we can retrieve all of the way back hundreds and hundreds of years earlier as we find reference to tapas in the Vedas, this creative heat can be stoked, can be built up through all manner of different practices. One of the ones that we discussed is the practice of fasting. And in India, quite often, entire households will take upon themselves a rhythm of perhaps fasting twice a month, linked with the phases of the moon, or once a week, the practice that our community in yoga training became part of our rhythm, a once a week fasting, or there are other instances of people doing more extended fasts. The tapas within the Jain community asked for people in the early fall to fast for a period of seven days, if possible. So all of this brings up really the sense of intimacy with bare necessities. As we come to feel our hunger, we gain an intimacy with our impulse to live, our impulse to breathe, our impulse to continue. And as one abstains from food, the reentry into food culture becomes all the more special, requires even a greater level of appreciation, a greater level perhaps even of care in regard to food. Another practice of tapas is to enter into periodic silence. It could be one day a week. It could be a month-long retreat, as is often found within various meditation communities. It could even be for a longer time. The great sage Mirababa took a vow of silence, and he communicated through a word board for years and years and years, and in fact composed his wonderful books in such a way that they were never spoken, but flowed through his hands. Another great mauna, meaning silent teacher, Baba Haridas, living and teaching for so many decades, having moved to California from India, and again, through his gesture, through his messages, creating a beautiful, silent place, challenging others to learn about the power of word, to learn about the importance of sound vibration by dwelling periodically or even for an extended period in silence. A third way of tapas is to devote oneself to regular practice. This enables that rhythm to emerge that will automatically help in this path of purification and that way of performing tapas, that way of performing austerity can be sort of baseline. 
as a yoga teacher, you want to encourage your students every day to be mindful, to develop a practice, to adhere to that practice. Pranayam, Surya Namaskar, a range of asanas, a practice of journal reflection, a practice of all of the different disciplines available through that beautiful yogic process. The second phase ties into that. In Kriya Yoga, we see Svadhyaya, and with Svadhyaya comes an invitation to self-inquiry, an invitation to self-exploration, an invitation for this journal, which becomes a little bit like a diary, for this journal that can narrate one's reflections through the frame, the various frames presented by yoga, as well as keen into one practice in particular, thinking about reflecting upon dreams and the gifts of insight and the gifts of inspiration that quite often can come through the dream process. And then finally, the third part of Kriya Yoga, Ishvara Prani Dahana, suggests that an individual take knowledge of oneself, one's weaknesses and one's strengths, and fashion and refashion these, working with both, using the weaknesses as the edge, the go-to place that keeps an individual humble, and use the strengths as a bit of encouragement and a bit of self-affirmation, not of ego, but put those two together, one step in front of the other, moving toward whatever that imagination presents in terms of being the best possible. Many teachers talk about seva. Seva, selfless giving, putting the concerns of others in the foreground, that can be a fashioning toward one's ishvara, one's place of intentional greater purification, one's aspiration. One could take an individual that one finds inspiring. It could be Mother Teresa, it could be any number of figures, Martin Luther King Jr., Jesus, Krishna, so many different possibilities, so many wonderful sources for inspiration, and just reflect on, perhaps read the writings of these individuals from time to time. And again, all things, if Kriya Yoga become involved, the tapas of having the discipline to do it, the svadhyaya, the study that's required, and then Ishvara Pranidhana, always moving incrementally toward that space of elevation. Now the effect of this, and really the purpose of all of this, this purpose of Kriya Yoga is to bring about samadhi, to bring about those moments, even those just instants, that allow one to feel that connection. 
That's the first purpose. And then the other, very explicitly, the other accomplishment gained through Kriya Yoga is the wearing away of the klesha karmas. And whereas we find a lot of positivity within tapas, svadhyaya, and ishvara pranidhana, within the klesha karmas, we're brought down to the grim realities of the raw material of what it means to be alive. And to be alive, to be born into this world, avidya, asmita, raga, devesha, avinavesha. We have a fundamental ignorance, a fundamental delusion about who we are and why we are here. And that delusion is fourfold. In any circumstance can be proof tested by asking the following questions. Am I mindful that whatever may be is transient? Okay, keeping in mind impermanence at the ground of our reality. From that we find wisdom, but if we're in ignorance, we think this is the way it really is. Second, do I think that something is just wonderful and pure is really going to give me happiness and joy forever and ever? Or am I being mindful? Am I taking into consideration that everything that has arisen, including the beauty of the human body, including the wonder of a brand new automobile, including a wardrobe well-chosen, Okay, that all of those things that we think, oh, such wonder that each of them carries by the nature of the flow of reality, carries with it a decline, carries with it partly due to impermanence, but this is impermanence that must be applied in the case where we think, oh, this is really going to do it. If I just perfect this one video game, life will be great. Doesn't work that way. And similarly, sukha and dukkha. Am I in a place of acknowledging the inevitability of the return of difficulty? Or am I coasting? Things are smooth. Things are good. I'm going to be happy every single day. Okay, this simply, again, is a delusional state, as is the delusional state of thinking that the dukkha, the suffering, the pain, the disappointment will never, ever go away. Okay. And then finally, we come in this conversation about ignorance with the bridge to the second of the kleshas, and this is the problem of self. Who do we think we are? Are we in that place of, oh, I am this, I've done that, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a, I've accomplished this particular income level, I live in this particular neighborhood, I associate with these people and these people only, 
all of those labels, all of those attachments to ego self, again, slowly must be extirpated, slowly must be put into their proper place. That, okay, this is happening now, but this never is truly who I am. That ego can launch a person into this double trouble place of attraction, raga, and devasha, hatred. And all of these, the ignorance, the ajnana or the avidya, the egotism, the asmita, the attachment and attraction and perhaps even addiction, the raga, and then the devasha, the negativity, they're all part of this process of unfolding life and the fifth of the kleshas is the one that keeps us going. Even if we rise above and actually effectively model ourselves on our best self, we keep moving and we need to keep moving. We need to take that next breath and move forward. So now, Sankhya. The philosophy of karma, the philosophy of overcoming klishta karma, sets up a paradigm, a thinking scheme, by which we come to identify all of those opportunities for ignorance and egotism and attraction and revulsion and the quest to keep living, that we can see all of those linked through karma with the three gunas. And the three gunas, tamas, sometimes we're down, rajas, sometimes we're fully active, in sattva, sometimes we move toward the sublime. But these three suffuse and pervade all of our actions. And if we're able to develop the dispassionate place of the observer that can identify and go into that place a little bit of a remove, then a deep solace, then the possibility of freedom, then a moment of Chittavriti Naroda, then an elevation away from the Klishta Karma, and the sattva, that great, wonderful purity, becomes predominant. And with that moment of purity, carefully cultivated in the beginning, automatic as one gains ease and fluidity within yoga, then that sattva, that place of illumination, yields an ongoing state of discernment. So this discernment, akin to wisdom, vidya, akin to jnana, true knowledge, that this discernment, so highly valued within the yoga interpretation of Sankhya philosophy, this discernment allows that purify, that rarify, that wonderful 
sometimes even blissful awareness to be the source of strength, to be the true identity go-to place. This place, it's impossible truly to articulate it or describe it, but most people have had that feeling of freedom. And as a yoga teacher, you're able to affirm those moments of absorption, those moments of an elevated sense of purification, those moments wherein the consciousness, the observer, the witness, the seer, can observe the operations of all the various, not only karmic impulses, but all of the sadhana practices, all of the spiritual practices that lead toward that awareness and dwell in that place of swarupa, dwell in that place of freedom, Kriya Yoga. The second pada of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra includes this invitation to embark upon an eightfold journey. And in our particular ashram tradition where I trained, our logo showed eight steps leading to the kindled flame of samadhi. And this image, if you can visualize a platform, and then a slightly smaller platform, and then a slightly smaller platform, and then a slightly smaller platform, and eventually leading up to the place of the kindled lamp. This image provides a way of conceptualizing one's own life. First, the first step of yoga is to step into the practices of the yamas, to step into the vast discipline of controlling, pulling in the reins of one's actions, one's interpersonal interplay with the realm of full worldly engagement. And the very first step, and I know that this was true of myself, that very first step requires a commitment to do no harm. For me personally, the beginning of the yoga path, even before I knew those words, was a desire to bring out a place in me that could truly respond empathetically with the place of others and the needs of others. And this is the ground of nonviolence, this capacity to see that in their fundamental presence within the universe, 
that all beings, including animals and birds and fish and even insects, that we all share a fundamental desire to live and to begin incrementally to construct a life that gives honor not only to one's own life, but gives honor as best possible to the lives of all of the myriad beings. And in fact, that very first toehold into spiritual life provides sufficient means to become a lifelong practice. As we look at those who have brought a vision of nonviolence into the world, we can see in that a desire for expansive consciousness, but a consciousness that requires also a call to action. So in the daily practice, the weekly practice, the monthly practice, the lifetime practice of a commitment to nonviolence, all of the ingredients are present to arise and to ascend into that place of one-pointed, illuminated awareness and sensitivity. And in service of that practice of nonviolence, we find satya. We find an invitation to speak truth, to dwell in truth, to manifest existence as it is, to manifest a way of dispelling ignorance, a way of speaking truth to power, a way of a willingness to engage the shadow side, and a willingness in service of nonviolence to return again and again in one's body, again and again in one's thoughts, again and again guarding the speech that then leads to action so that it moves a person toward that sattva rather than toward the asat, rather than toward the lie rather than to the place of ego. Returning again and again through satya to that foundational truth. And also on this vast foundational platform, we find we're encouraged and your students can be invited to journal, to reflect upon the practice of asteya, of not taking anything other than what is truly one's own property. And in the most rarefied example provided by the practitioners of extreme renunciation, by sadhus, by munis, by Samans and Shramanas, okay, so many different names for the sannyasins. What they do is so minimize what they take 
from the world, what they take from the environment, that they provide an example of ultimate non-theft, only sparingly taking your time, only sparingly taking from all that is available to us in today's abundant agriculture, taking only sparingly what is available in terms of adornment, taking only sparingly what is available in terms of transport. We steal in so many ways. We take food that then gets wasted. We take clothes that merely pile up in the closet. We take entertainment till we're absolutely glutted. And in each of those experiences, we are not only taking more than we actually need, but we're taking from the possibility of a sustainable planet. So we need to think and reflect upon theft. Yes, in terms of no embezzlement. Yes, in terms of returning that borrowed pen. And we need to think of non-theft and its broader implications and ramifications. Also, on this very first entry foundational level, we need to think about appropriate behavior vis-a-vis -vis sexuality. Since time immemorial, this power has been used and abused, and it needs to be contextualized in terms of relationship, in terms of doing no harm, in terms of speaking truth, in terms of not stealing from someone else. And then on this foundational platform, we find also a call interwoven with all of the others to minimize our possessions. Minimalization of possessions allows the reduction of ego. Minimalization of possessions allows the overcoming of ignorance. Minimalization of possessions allows one to temper and to tamp down inclinations toward addictive behaviors. So again, with that broad foundation, one is ready to take the next step up into the second limb of yoga, which is the niyamas, which are the positive observances of consciously moving one's life toward a place of increased purity, shaucha, moving one's life habitually into appreciation, into contentment, rather than into a place of complaint, into a place of celebration. Even the occasion of taking a breath, even the occasion of simply acknowledging the presence of one's body in whatever condition, this can bring one into, for a moment, an instant into what the Buddhists call the Tushita heaven, the Santosha place, the contentment place. And from and within that place, one can take up Kriya Yoga, can take up this willingness 
to engage on a periodic fast or silence or commitment to opening that space of silence. One can commit to, as yoga students can be advised, to be a little bit more attuned through the diary, through the self-reflective journal on what is this relationship between lower tendencies and the higher tendencies, that svadhyaya, that reflection, that willingness to take on a practice, a rhythm of reading about the great lives of others, reading holy literature, reading edifying philosophical treatises, all in service of Ishvara Pranidhana, of modeling, of refashioning, of reshaping that raw material of karma and reconstituting it toward increasing levels of sat, of satya, of sattva, of existence, of pure existence, quite often modeled in past history personal history, people who we have personally admired, and the examples throughout history of exemplars, of avatars, of Tirthankaras, of Buddhas, of Jinnas, people, sadhus and munis and, and various saints and yasis throughout history that have provided inspiration and continue to provide inspiration to bring out our greatest self. And then, yama, niyama, we move into asana. And in asana, in simply being in that place of stira, stability, and sukha, happiness, we're able to call our very physicality into a place close to symmetry, into a place of that amazing ease, whereby we understand the verticality of our body. We're able to play with the horizontality of our body, we're able to go into those various poses named, called out by the thousands, by the tens of thousands that allow us to stretch that fascia that codes alongside and on top of and because of our klishta karmas. And as we stretch that fascia, as we stretch that connective tissue, we make space to be a truly present and nonviolent and apathetic person. We make space to be, to be fully present, to be in that place of sat, that place of satya, that place of truth, that place of sattva, that place of illumination. We make ourselves Stitta prajna, samastitta standing fully with open face, with open heart. We're able to sit in Padma Asana as if upon a lotus, 
and seeing our body as a cascade of arising Padma, of arising centers of consciousness, is arising and arriving at that Padma place of pure quiet, asana, fully present, fully calm, ascending and descending with each and every breath. And that brings us to the level of the fourth great practice of yoga, of pranayama. Inhale breath and hold, perhaps pulling up from below and bringing down from above, centering in the middle. And then releasing that exhale and going into the sustained hold where we encounter that dark cave of our being, where we allow all of that energy filling the various nadis and channels of the body to be brought up under the ribcage, pointing upward toward the heart. And as we release that held exhale, and we re-energize by inviting new breath, we become prepared and purified for the re-engagement of all that surrounds us and all to which we are committed and for which we have become responsible. So this intimacy with breath and that vertical breath can also be enhanced as we learn from the later Hatha Yoga texts by a horizontal breath, a breath that will take in pran on one side and again hold and release that exhaled breath on the other side. And again, a hold. And then bring, bring that breath in from the other side and hold. And release that breath on the original side and hold. And that horizontality, which can take so many variations of count and number and duration and repetition, that becomes both literal and metaphorical, both subtle and gross for the possibility of ascent of being human. Our breath links from our emotions into our thoughts, and by steady, purposeful attention to that breath, we're able to purify the nadis, we're able to purify 
all that connects us, inner and outer. And with that skill, once in a while, every day, that skill in being mindful and attentive to the breath, we're able to create that place of openness that simultaneously becomes a place of inwardness, a place of pratyahara, of gathering, usually a gathering felt within the heart that allows us to reset, that prepares us for experiences of sustained concentration, meditation, and samadhi. And the whole second pada, beginning with ethical comportment in sound, nonviolent relationships with the external world, empowering us to become a reservoir of purity and contentment and ongoing positivity, the niyamas, awareness of breath, the third part of the Eightfold Path, linked with asana, this ascent to the place the pinnacle of the niyamas, to be able to cultivate our better self, to model ourselves after the best of selves. And that allows us to literally land through asana into a place of physical and mental equipoise, to be able to sit in asana, to be able to stand within stiti, so that we can feel and experience and move into that purifying place of breath, the inhale, the hold, the exhale, and then the hold that allows our inner light to be revealed. When that happens, when that equipoise of action, inspiration, body and breath takes hold, we enter from that fourth place of pranayama, building on the third place of asana, the second step of niyama, grounded in the practice of the yamas, nonviolence and the rest that when all of those are part of our toolbox and become our go-to place, then we're gathered, then we're truly inward, and then we're ready for the inner limbs, the inner gifts of sustained yoga practice. Concentration of the mind is its binding to a place. The extension of one intention is meditation. When the purpose alone shines forth as if empty, 
in its true form, that indeed is samadhi. Dharana, dhyana, samadhi. Desha bandhas chitasya dharana, desha bandhas chitasya dharana, desha bandha chitasya dharana, tatra pratyayeka tanata dhyanam, tatra pratyayeka tanata dhyana, Tatra Pratyayeka Tanata Dhyana Tad Evarta Matra Nirbhasam Svarupashunyam Iva Samadhi Tad Evarta Matra Nirbhasam Svarupashunyam Iva Samadhi Tad Evarta Matra nirbhasam svarupa shunyam iva samadhi. These three sutras, opening the third pada, encapsulate this wonderful place of the inner limbs, the last three limbs of Patanjali. And just as that foundation becomes more and more focused, so also with these three, we see that the world has become under the control of the intentional mind. That to be able to hold something in a sustained way in a particular place, that this describes the process of dharana, the process of concentration. And that when concentration becomes focused on one thing, and when in that concentrated experience, one can extend that one thing, that one intention, that a state of meditation, of dhyana, arises. And that as this dhyana reaches its culmination, samadhi, this collapse of difference between the perceiver, the act of perception, and that which is perceived, that distinction dissolves and we arrive at a point metaphorically depicted as a single flame of illumination. This place wherein everything becomes absorbed, everything becomes whelmed, everything becomes rarefied, so that without those distinctions, it's as if everything is just emptied, and in that emptiness, the svarupa emerges. The svarupa, that true form, 
that we know from the very beginning of the Yoga Sutra is none other than witness consciousness, none other than the seer, the drashter, the purusha. And those moments in samadhi where everything has been gathered together, everything has been worked from various angles, everything has come to a place of singularity, and in that singularity, this moment, very often just very quiet moment of total connection, of total yoga, comes front and center. So I want to talk a bit about process, how does one, having gone through the various stages of yoga up to the place where one is ready for concentration, how does that play out? And in later literature, the Garanda Samhita in particular, and also texts of both Buddhism and Jainism, how does one engage dharana? Pindasta, dharana, suggests that by looking successively and successfully at various points of focus, one can gain fluency and currency and skill in dharana. And in the Garanda Samhita and in the practices that were given to me at Yoga Anandashram, we were given a practice of dharana to go out into the world. And in my case, it was a nearby truck farm, just two houses down from the suburban home where I was living. And I went, dug some dirt out of that truck farm where they were growing onions, this was a practice that we undertook in the fall and the crop was ready for harvest. But I took a little bit of that dirt, which had also nurtured the onions, and as instructed, put it on a plate, just an eight inch, nine inch plate, and brought it into my rented room and sat, as instructed, 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night for a full month just gazing upon that soil, focusing the mind on binding that mind to that place of earth. And as advised in the Vishuddhi Bhaga, as advised in our instructions, just brought up all of the different words, first in the English language, and then in the Sanskrit language as I was learning them, and then pulling out a little bit from my French and my Spanish, and thinking about all of the different words that arise, that have been placed upon the earth, soil, dirt, terra, la terre, la terre. Thinking about prithivi, thinking about booming, and allowing in that gaze for memories to come up, memories of my own childhood rearing on the loamy plain just south 
of Lake Ontario, the loamy plain from which acres and acres of tomatoes would be harvested, from which on the farm where our house was located, we could go out into the fields and find strawberries, both cultivated and wild, where we could go out into the forest and see rising up from the earth these magnificent first growth trees, tall, taller than the eye could see, and then reflect on the relationship between earth and food and body. And then the second month came. And we were told for our dharana, for our focus, to get a clear bowl of water and to sit similarly and gaze upon that water. And as with the earth, memories flooded in, imaginations were stoked up, and experiences of direct encounters of water were invited. I originally learned to swim in the waters of Lake Ontario, one of the Great Lakes. And then, and this is a little bit of a sadness to that concentration, because pollution was detected in the early 60s, we had to move into Oak Orchard Creek, this beautiful creek that winds its way through the northern plain of New York State, just south of Lake Ontario, before flowing into the lake. And we swam out to the buoys, learned the dead man's flow, learned how to breathe with water, learned intimacy with water, and also reflections on that well sunk right outside of our house. And every once in a while, I'd push the cover aside and look down into that well. And then remembrances of water flowing purely from the tap and cherishing that wonderful well water with all of its flavor and all of its blessings. And then thinking about our move to Long Island, our move from one part of New York State to another where we had the Long Island Sound, the Great South Bay, beautiful body of water, and the summer spent within the waves of the Atlantic Ocean. And then now, of course, thinking about so many different bodies of water, everyone has some relationship with water in its pristine form and has that innate desire to keep water pure, to keep water safe. So a full month on the water. And I remember coming back late at night from the ashram, from the South Shore to the North Shore, and going out and watching the diadems light up Stony Brook Harbor at night. And again, another very special secret revealed by water. And then a third month directed to the concentration upon fire, that kindled flame, we were told, light a candle, go to that candle, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, and in the ashram, we sat with a ghee-felled deepa, a ghee-felt lamp. And our teacher, who grew up in Calcutta before the time of electricity, would share with us that she would sit at the lantern 
and sometimes just that Giefeld Deepa to do her studies, her studies of Shakespeare, her studies of Yoga Sutra, her studies of the Bhagavad Gita. And we reflected upon how illumination allows us to read, how illumination, how Agni allows us to stay warm in winter, how illumination is both the reality and the metaphor for our own illumination, our own arriving at that place of connection with inner light and that place of connection with outer light. And in this practice, we were advised to always rise with the rising sun, to allow our Surya Namaskar, to honor the dawning of the new day and honor the return of natural light, allowing us to be within that rhythm of the universe in the morning and also to honor the rhythm of the setting sun. And for many years, I served as Pujari, traveling to the ashram at dawn, making certain the place was freshly clean, making certain that the flowers that reflect the beauty of the sun were fresh, making certain that the mantras were said in order to bring a vibratory presence to that space every morning, sunrise, and every evening at sunset. And then a fourth month, we were given over to concentration on the wind, on Vayu. And we watched as the trees, the great, large, magnificent oaks, as well as the scrub oaks that grow out of the sandy loam of Long Island, as the trees were moved by the swaying wind, we watched as incense wafted through the room, showing the presence of air in all, all spaces. And we were invited in this to also reflect on the connection through our concentration, through our dharana, on the breath inward and the breath external. And as of I, I have taught this many years, and invited students to look at the movement of incense through morning light filtering down into the meditation space, in this instance of the Hill Street Center, we were sort of wrapped in, in, wrapped in terms of R-A-P-T, as well as wrapped R-A-P-E-D, sort of wrapped into this moment, which brought us to the wrapped breath, and into a very quiet form of rapture, contemplating, meditating, concentrating upon this relationship between breath, inner and outer. And then in our fifth month of concentration, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, we worked simply with space. And for years, we would travel to the ashram very early in the morning, and in our training, and our training as dharmacharams, we would sit and gaze outside 
of the beautiful north-facing window with no instruction, allowing our thoughts to float, sometimes taking stock, inventory, mental inventory, moral inventory, and sometimes just drifting as we would, witnessing the form of that northern oak, witnessing the change of seasons on the platform, on the landscape of that changing sky, noting the change of seasons, noting the change in daylight, just noting that place of space. And then the sixth month, we were invited to reflect on fragrance. And it dawned on us that fragrance comes from the earth. And in the seventh month, we were invited to explore the sense of taste. With a little bit of a clove in the mouth, feeling and tasting, a little bit of reflection on that relationship between water and saliva and flavor. And then the next month, we were to reflect upon vision, reflect upon sight, reflect not only upon the importance of the seer, but the beauty of all that can be seen and then the next month, we were invited in the morning and in the evening to reflect upon the touch available to us through the skin, the caress of the breeze upon our exposed body parts, and all that is available to us through this magnificent sense of touch. And then the final month, we were given over to just simply allowing ourselves to hear, to listen what comes to us from the vast expanse of space and to reflect on that relationship, that precious intimacy of space and sound and just simply feel that connection. And as you might have gathered, these meditations lead from concentration, through meditation, into moments of wonderful, liberating connection, moments of samadhi, where the earth's body becomes this body, where the water body feels its presence within this body, where that body of what can be seen becomes inseparable from the experience of this body when that touch, when that hearing, when all of these become joined, all of this, all of this experience, all of this concentration yields both experience and a wonderful sense of freedom.
samyama is the unity of these three, concentration, meditation, and samadhi. From the mastery of this, the splendor of wisdom. Its application is in stages. These three inner limbs, concentration, meditation, and samadhi, are distinct from the other five limbs, restraint, observances, postures, control of breath, inwardness. These are indeed outer limbs in regard to the seedless. Trium ekatra samyamaha, trium ekatra samyamaha, trium ekatra samyamaha, tajayat prajnyalokaha, tajayat prajnyalokaha, tajaya prajnyalokaha, tasya bhumi shuvinyogaha, tasya bhumi shuvinyogaha, tasya bhumi shuvinyogaha, triam antar angam purvebhyaha, triam antar angam purvebhyaha, Triam antarangam purvebhyaha, tadapi bahir angam nirbijasya, tadapi bahir angam nirbijasya, tadapi bahir angam nirbijasya. This remarkable concatenation juxtaposition, if you will, spirals in a way that encourages, encourages the yoga theorist, but also requires a little bit of humility. Dharana, dhyana, samadhi, concentration, meditation, and samadhi are to be applied successively. And the three of them in tandem, through this gathered intention and application, leads to the appearance, the reality of prajna. And recall, we see this word prajna invoked in the first pada invoked in the second pada, again invoked in the third pada, this prajna, this going forth of knowledge insight, this arrival at a place of wisdom, and this really brings into relief this moment of yoga where by focusing the mind, within a body and breath that have been stabilized, within a body and breath that reside upon profoundly fastidious, ethical, and exuberant participative behavior that conduces toward the greater good, all of that can lead to that moment within samyama, within 
that part of samyama identified as samadhi, where everything is as it needs to be. The Whiteheadians, the process philosophers, would talk about something similar as a state of concrescence, where all of the conditions have been fulfilled and there's a moment of divine presence within that experience. And that divine presence takes the shape of a very human quality of wisdom. And the distinction is made here that the five preparatory phases of ethics, yamas, observances, niyamas, of posture, asana, of pranayama, of breath control, of pratyahara, that activity of arriving at inward stability, that all of those are sort of preparatory and external to these three samyama practices that are profoundly interior. Bahya, external, antar, inner. However, let's not get too big-headed about this because within samyama, there still remain vestiges of objects of concentration, remain topics to be meditated upon that qualify that samadhi is still holding some seed. And in some ways, this anticipates a little bit of a caution given at the end of this pada, that as long as there are seeds, we're still in the realm of sabija. And remembering, harking back to the very first pada, all of those activities delineated as sabitarka, nirvitarka, working with objects, savichara, nirvichara, working with emotions, working with past tendencies, working with the subtle aspects that drive the personality, that all of those are said to be with seed and are said to be preparatory for the final samadhi, the sarva naroda samadhi, which is said to be near bija, said to be in a place beyond any qualification whatsoever. And that phase, that phase of utter final ascent and release, that phase is invoked here again as nirbija, without any requirement of the enduring presence of narrative, without the enduring presence of the lingering afterthoughts and memories and imaginings having to do with objects in the constructed world. So we're seeing here that samyama, this taking up of the final three limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, that this itself, by definition, is preparatory for a state of utter, total blessedness. Now, is this too arcane for an everyday yoga studio? 
as a trainer of yoga teachers and teacher of yoga, I would say, no, absolutely not. Don't get scared off of talking about samadhi by totalizing it. And what we as teachers can do is give touchstone encouragements along with reality checks that allow our students permission to get inspired, even engage in flights of fancy or imaginations of, oh, this is such a great state that I've achieved, and affirm that, yeah, this is great stuff, and it still remains within the realm of samyama, and samyama resides on the presence of the narrative, resides and requires the presence of the physical prop. Now, let's feature entering a yoga space, a yoga studio, and the students are brought through in the course of an hour or 90 minutes, or even a longer, say, day-long retreat, they're brought through a variety of experiences. And whether it may be apparent or not, even the simple design of the yoga studio sends a deeply coded yoga message. And I'm thinking from the onset, reflecting on my own experience and then even in my own experience of decades more recent, is that a yoga space, by definition, is an open space. A yoga space invites people, and there's, of course, a tinge of irony with all of the counterexamples, but invites people into the yama of a parigraha, that the clothing, although it may be elegant, somewhat minimal, that the floor, although maybe softened by a yoga mat, is an open floor, and that aside from perhaps some inspirational placement of images or perhaps some nicely placed windows, there's a sparseness to a yoga space that invites engagement with a sense of inner space. So again, reflecting on earth, water, fire, air, and space, a yoga studio invokes Mother Earth simply in the floor, in the walls, often with the simplicity of a ceiling, or if it's outdoors, invites people to just lie upon the body of Mother Earth, to be hugged by Mother Earth, in the beginning and at the end. That there will be an invocation, depending upon the style of yoga, some invocation of water. If it's a hot yoga, there will be perspiration. There will most likely be that glass of water nearby. And if it's a yoga space that's blessed with perhaps a vase of flowers or even an orchid, there's an awareness of moisture invoked through gathering people into that space. And then the set of the lighting. 
whether it's a bright light, a dim light, whether there might be a flame kindled. But a yoga teacher generally will work with degrees of illumination. They may in fact invoke the presence of sunlight should it present itself. And then the breathing, okay? There's a focus, there's a dharana on the rhythm of breath. And if it may be a yoga studio that allows or even encourages the use of incense, there may be either the intentional or unintentional catching through the corner of one's eye, the wafting of incense through the room, or noticing outside the window the gentle swaying of the trees. And certainly within the course of teaching yoga, you encourage your students to breathe in, to breathe out, connecting with that inner wind. And of course, there's that both physical container of space within the yoga space and that emotional space created that moves the students incrementally toward calm. So these are all ways in which the external, the bahya, within the practice of concentration, of meditation, and even moments of deep still, are part of the grammar of the yoga class in which you participate, and the yoga class which perhaps you're gifted to offer to others. It's a concentrated moment. It sometimes, not always, but sometimes will move into a sustained meditative moment. Perhaps in Shavasana toward the end of class. Perhaps in the rhythm, if part of your practice is to open with Surya Namaskar, in the rhythm of flow, that all of these invite people into a meditative moment. And then sometimes, never truly can be scripted, but sometimes there will be a moment of either emotional elevation or emotional release, where the tears simply stream, or a release into, I remember, because of my own experiences of, of body discomfort, feeling deeply the yuckiness of my contracted fascia in various parts of my body, and feeling the tightness, noting it and allowing myself to experience that sorrow and that feeling of insufficiency and then feeling ever so slowly the joy of release as through years of practice, those knots, those physical embodiments of difficulty and suffering had been made known and had been slowly unraveled. And those moments of aha, those moments of, oh, I don't have to always be that way. Those moments of, wow. Those revelatory moments, those are the moments through Samyama that speak to us. 
So all of this is preparatory ground for yoga students to begin to understand vibhuti, to begin to understand what is known in yoga as power. There's a philosophical progression of any yoga that we find in the third pada that deals very elegantly with this dance between the subtle and the gross, the bodily and the emotional, the mental and the meditative. And in instance after instance, we will explore how setting an intention through samyama allows a depth of understanding for physicality, lends a depth of understanding to our narrative that arises from the subtle, and how both our physicality and our narrative not only can be challenged through the raw honesty of yoga, but also can be extended, stretched out, like the fascia stretched out, it becomes stretched out, and purified through yoga practice. And this brings us into a place of yoga that quite often yoga teachers don't venture forth into because powers can sound just utterly otherworldly, can sound utterly irrelevant to the experience of yoga, could be the stuff of comic books or fantasy. But as we explore this pada, we're going to do a phenomenology of how we as people of yoga, how we as teachers of yoga, can invite people through that process of svadhyaya, through that process of self-reflection, through that process of self-application of the techniques to one's body and to one's narrative, how we can understand, how we can learn, and how we can cultivate that sense of the inward informing, improving, purifying, and bringing us closer to that place of connection, closer to that place of yoga that allows us to undo everything. And then with purpose, with intention, with clarity, to rebuild everything. And this, like the breath, provides the template for yoga practice. Breathing in, purifying, and breathing out, creating, creating, and creating. Thanks for listening to this episode of Professor Chapel's lecture series about the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Discover more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on podcast.glo.com. I'm Derek Mills. <laughs>